you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2? I'm going to read once again verses 5 through 11, where we find ourselves at the present time as we're going through this book. The New American Standard Bible reads this way. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also is in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, those on the earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The society in which we live, in this society, Climbing the ladder of success is portrayed as a desirable aspiration. By that we mean we need more power, more recognition, more honor, more prestige and security. In the face of that and opposite of that, God's Word makes it clear that the exact opposite is to be true of those who are citizens of God's kingdom. And we find a clear example of this kingdom of God perspective in the passage that we're studying. We're looking at the life of the king of the kingdom. Having spoken of the necessity of unity, and he gave that to us earlier in this chapter, having same mind, same love, exercising humility by counting others more significant than ourselves, walking in full accord, Paul is making it clear that if the Philippian believers want to experience true joy described in those verses, In this passage, verses 5 through 11, Paul is presenting Jesus Christ as the greatest example of humility. Remember, humility leads to unity, leads to joy. Now, in presenting Christ as the supreme example of humility, Paul states in verse 5, it all begins in the mind. Verse 6, he tells us what we should think of. We should not forget at what Jesus refused to hang on to tightly. And what was that? He's God. He's always been God. And then in verse 7 he says, look at what he voluntarily embraced. He emptied himself, he became a slave, and he was made in the likeness of men, flesh and blood without sin. Today where we find ourselves in verse 8, Jesus continues to descend rather than ascend, even to the point of dying on a cross. Oh, what humility we have before us. And I somewhat feel, as I've been studying this week, kind of like Moses hearing the voice of God, take your shoes off. Take your shoes off. You are entering holy ground. May God give us a spirit of reverence, and adoration and worship as we look at the descent of Jesus to the cross. Thomas, one of the commentators, comments, 
He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. God made himself nothing. Now that's pretty extraordinary. But there was more. He was made in the likeness of human beings. That is, God the Son had his diapers changed. He was washed and fed by his mother, Mary. God in a stable? Ah, but there's still more. He took the very nature of a slave or a servant. God washing feet? Ah, but there's still more. And what did the angels think about all this? One day they blinked in astonishment as they saw their great creator in a manger in Bethlehem. They must have found the spectacle incomprehensible. And then as the days and years moved on, they saw a drama unfold which must have overloaded every circuit in their computers. One day the word comes that their Lord is in Gethsemane and one of them is being sent to strengthen Him. Hours later there comes even more astonishing news. He's bleeding on the cross of Calvary. Ah, that surely is the bottom. That's the very worst, but no, it's not. The next thing was the Father had forsaken Him. The God whose whole impulse it was to wash away the tears from the eyes of human beings, not washing away the tears of His own Son. That's how it was from the beginning to the end of His earthly life. Down, down, down. The tremendous step from the throne to the stable and then the incredible journey from the stable to the cross and beyond to the journey on the cross itself is immolation, even to the point of dereliction. The angels must have been saying, is this ever going to end? How low can he go? Says Mr. McLeod. He humbled himself, says Paul. He quite deliberately takes each step by himself. In other words, this was not just a single step, just a long leap and then he was one step down from the throne to our redemption. No, brothers and sisters. There was a Jacob's ladder, so to speak, where Jesus went down each of those rungs and on each step was carved words like this. Conception, birth, stable, infantile weakness, refugee in Egypt, carpenter's shop, baptism, wilderness temptations, Satan, constant travel, endless teaching, exhausting healings, betrayal, Gethsemane, flogging, crucifixion, dereliction, abandonment, death, and burial. He goes down, down, down. He plums the depths of the lake of fire where he enters into the cosmic incinerator of sin called Golgotha. And finally, he is dead. It's not that he just dies, but that he in whom was the life of men and that life was the light of men is now dead. So brothers, please... Be aware again. The Lord does not choose the humiliation as just one long leap. 
It was not just one instant great identifiable mass of humiliation that engulfed him. It lasted for 30 years. Every day from Bethlehem to the tomb, he's making humble choices. Now, of course, he does it in submission to his Father's will. He does it by the strength and help of the Holy Spirit, but he does it. He chooses to go down. It's not that he was humbled. He humbled himself. Down into the abyss he goes. Further and further into the darkness. Every day there were fierce temptations for him to abandon that path. Hear the voice, the cynical voice of temptation from the devil. Tell those stones to become bread. Even while hanging on the cross, they don't stop. Come down from the cross. End this enfleshment. Abdicate the position of being a servant. But he makes the choice to obey God each day, going down another step and then another, and finally to the lowest rung of that ladder. He was not standing on an escalator and pushed the down button and automatically went down. Every moment of his life, he is selecting the shame. He's choosing the weariness. And he's taking the Father's commandment to lay down his life. Sometimes he's very near the edge. And there's a fearful precipice on one side. He's teetering on the brink of danger. He feels the horror of it, but he doesn't fall over. You see, one failure for one moment in his human endurance would have achieved the universal and eternal triumph of evil and wickedness. An old Scottish preacher called James McLagan said that had Jesus fallen, that would have done what is unimaginable and almost too fearful to name. It would have meant the defeat of the Father's counsel, the failure of His Father's truth, and the desecration of His Father's Godhead, where He finally offers Himself as a sacrifice. No, he binds himself, as it were, to the horns of the altar. He has chosen the cup, and there he drinks it completely. He humbled himself every day, constantly. And now we come to verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In verse 7, we saw three descriptions of his humility. In verse 8, after we look at the first phrase, we'll see three more descriptions as he finally gets to the bottom of the ladder of humiliation. Please notice verse 8 says, and being found in human form. That's really a repetition of the last line of verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. They are essentially identical. So I asked myself the question, Paul, why would you repeat that? Well, Paul doesn't do anything indiscriminately or arbitrarily. There's a purpose in this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is my take on it. Paul, why the repetition? To emphasize that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, fully God, came to this earth as a real man. 
Now, is that important? Listen to 1 John verse 4. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. Anyone who denies that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in human flesh. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. I care not how many degrees they have by their name. I care not how much influence they have. If they deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, they are a deceiver and an antichrist. Turn, run, and leave them alone and give them no credence whatsoever. Jesus was recognized in fashion as a human being. In the estimation of those in his day who beheld him, he was just a man. Just like themselves in so many respects except for sin. He didn't have a halo. He didn't have a glow about his face. He was just like men. He was born through the natural process of childbirth. He grew up, Luke 2. He had siblings. He learned a trade. He got hungry and thirsty and weary and sleepy. He became grieved and angry. He wept. He rejoiced. And he died. Jesus was made in the likeness of men. And you fast forward to the book of Hebrews. Is that important? Oh, so important. Lest he experience what we did without sin, he could never come to my side and say, Ed Fleming, I know exactly what you're going through. I passed the test, and I can give you the strength and the wisdom that you need by my Holy Spirit. Well, let's look at that threefold description carrying on in verse 8. It says, He humbled Himself. If you go back up to verse 3, he's encouraging these Philippian believers to have the same attitude and actions. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The Greek language could be translated this way. In humble-mindedness, each person counting the other better than himself. Talk about an anti-mantra for the Western culture. Nobody's more important than me. It's all about me. It's not Yuffies. It's selfies. Very indicative, folks. It's all about me. If I like it, if it pleases me, if it's what I want, if it's not, no. And the problem is, everybody's got their own, and we're like this. Especially, in the church, where it ought not even to be seen or named among the people of God. One commentator said this, the word that's used for humble here was used by non-Christians in an evil sense. It was a synonym of being a coward or just plain mean. But when grace changes someone's heart, Submission out of fear 
changes to submission out of love that leads to true humility being born in the soul. And Jesus, without sin, is the example of what happens to someone who becomes a Christian. By the way, the word Christian is only used one time in the Bible. Do you know where it's found? Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. They were called Christians. Do you know what Christian means? Take the word Christ and Ian, separate, and it means to be a little Christ. Those of that day used it as a term of derision. Oh, you're just like Christ. And it was a, a terrible term. They took it as a badge of honor. And so if I'm going to call myself a Christian, I had better find out what was Jesus like and seek to be like Him. That's what the Spirit of God is doing in Christians' lives. He's conforming them to the image of Jesus Christ. For Paul, this virtue is associated with tenderheartedness, kindness, forbearance, long-suffering, and meekness. You'll find this, this word in his other letters. So says Mr. Hendrickson, also in the book of Acts. So Paul re repeats this virtue here so that these believers will understand that he wants them to get the relationship between humility and unity. They've got problems in that church. They need unity. How does it come from humility? How do we know what humility is? Look and think about the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's the result of such? Well, each person will seek to outdo the others by honoring and preferring them above their own interests. Verse 3, he commands it. In this verse, he shows the model of Christ. Secondly, let's go down another rung on this ladder. He not only humbled himself, but it says in verse 8, he became obedient to the point of death. One of the commentators says, the key to all this is obedience. Jesus' sufferings were not fate. It was not that some great whirling wheel came crashing into his life irresistibly and mangled him and he was helpless before it. This was no calamity. It was not the accident of suffering. It was obedience to God, the God who appointed him to become the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the elect. It was obedience with all the implications that go along with that. Arrest, trial, scourging, mockery, unbearable pain. Paul says God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And what we need to understand is that at every stage of this descent, Jesus was obedient. What the first Adam could not do, he couldn't even keep one command by not touching the tree. What he could not do, the last Adam displayed a range of costly obedience moment by moment, year by year, in the wilderness of this world. Romans 5.19 says, By the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners. And so by the obedience of one, many are made righteous. From Bethlehem to Golgotha, it was all the time the obedience of Jesus Christ, the God-man. This is what we might call vicarious or substitutionary obedience. And that's our righteousness as well, brothers. We are clothed with all of the merits, all of the eloquence, all of the discernment of the unfaltering obedience of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as He goes from the cradle to the cross. 
There's no moment in this whole experience when He is not our Redeemer. There was no day in that full life when He was not acting in substitutionary, vicarious capacity. Each moment of it had the glory of grace and truth, the glory of a staggering obedience of the incarnate God. Please know this. Theologically, we are saved by the life and the death of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now are we reconciled and we shall be saved by His life. Two things to go to heaven. Perfect, complete, total obedience to the law of God and a sinless blood sacrifice. I'll raise my hand only see if you will. Anybody here got that? No hope. <laughs> Obey the law 24-7, 365 days a year? I can hardly go 10 minutes without an evil thought or a, a nasty action or something. So, I'll, number one, I'm gone there. Offer a blood sacrifice? Sinless blood sacrifice? Strike two. So what am I going to do? I'm going to come to God and say, God, what I cannot do, I receive what Jesus Christ did in my place. He obeyed the law for me. He died for me. Obedience, brothers. You know what? That's the key for my life, for our lives in the 21st century. Someone, I think his name was Whitman, said this. For many of us, we have already predetermined the things God wants us to do. We have set parameters around our service. We will only serve in such and such a place, in this or that way, on this or that day. We have convinced ourselves that God would never ask us to do anything outside of that box. A.K.A., God would never ruffle my feathers. God would never ask me to do something that I really don't like. Really? In reality, we have simply decided we're not going to listen to God when He asks us to go outside that box. We have what someone calls selective obedience, kind of like selective hearing, what most husbands have when their wives are talking to them. Now that's different than real obedience. Genuine discipleship involves being obedient to Christ whatever the cost, whenever the call, wherever the place, and however. There are no part-time, partial disciples. With Jesus Christ, it's either all or nothing. Someone has said it this way, Jesus Christ is Lord of all, or He's not Lord at all. Servanthood means being obedient whatever the cost. There is nothing He will ever ask of us that will cost us as much as going to the cross cost Him. We can never give up as much as He gave up. We can never humble ourselves as much as He humbled Himself. However, we must be willing. There's the key. We must be willing to do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, wherever He wants, whatever the cost. Thirdly in this verse, and this is the third step in verse 8, as we now finally get down to the bottom rung of this ladder of descent, 
His obedience was to the point of death, but not just any death, but a death on a cross. McLeod says he humbled himself. It is impossible for us to grasp the depth of this statement, to understand the intensity of what God is telling us here. He who made all men, who knew the hearts of all men, who had all authority over men, humbled himself and allowed himself to be executed by men. Not just any execution, but the cross. He gives an interesting statement here. Cause me to stop for a few moments and think about it. Listen. The early church did not view the cross the same way we do. They didn't wear it around their necks or in their ears as earrings. Can you imagine if someone today had a solid gold electric chair and put diamonds in it? People would think they were nuts, wouldn't they? In Jesus' day, they viewed the cross as we might view the gallows or the guillotine. It was not simply a form of execution. It was the lowest form of execution reserved for the lowest classes of people, for those who had no standing and no rights. That Jesus, God incarnate, should die on a cross was indeed a scandal. That's the Greek word transliterated out of it. Paul uses the word offense. It was a scandal, as he wrote to the Galatians. If you're not aware, let me just share with you quickly. In the world, Paul shared with the Philippians, crucifixion was the lowest that anybody could stoop socially. It was also the cruelest form of official execution in the Roman Empire. Crucifixion was not the conversation of polite company. And because of the unusual cruelty of the executioners, the specifics of the process are not frequently described. However, generally, the victim was first of all tortured in various ways. And then they were fastened to a cross in either one or all of three ways. Impaling, nailing, or being bound with ropes. Death came slowly over a period of days as the victim experienced increased blood loss, thirst, hunger, the attacks of wild animals, and suffocation. Can't you see why what Paul said in 1 Corinthians is so true? The cross to the Jew was what? A stumbling... God dying on a cross? You got to be kidding me, would say the devout Jew. But to the Greeks, Paul says it's nonsense. Foolishness. Oh, go make up another myth and fairy tale. But to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. In this, we begin to understand the depths of humility to which Jesus sunk in order to be obedient to the will of the Father. McLeod ends by saying, death was obedience, not dying would be disobedience. But praise God, Jesus was obedient. So I asked myself a couple of questions as I'm thinking about this. Who, who is this on the cross? Who is this person? Well, we know that many a guilty victim had died and been crucified. But each one of them got what they deserved. 
But this one, this one, on the cross of Golgotha's hill was the spotless, sinless Lamb of God dying not for His own sin, but for the sins of His people, those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 You should know that verse. You should remember that verse. And as often as you can, you should tell people that verse. That's some wonderful news. And what does it say? That Jesus Christ, who had never sinned, was treated as if He had always sinned. So that anyone who believes on what He did in their behalf, who always had sinned, can be treated as if they were never sinners. What a wonderful gospel. What good news that is in our day. There's a uniqueness about the crucifixion of Christ as well. Over history, many people have died justly and according to the law of that day, fairly. But not so with Jesus. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, the sinless for the sinner. Why? that he might bring us to God. Henderson gives a little bit more explanation of this, which I found very helpful. Let me share it with you. He said, His obedience knew no bounds, even to the extent of death. Now think about it. In that death, he acted as both the priest offering the sacrifice and the sacrifice being offered. There's the uniqueness of the death of Christ. As a priest, he's offering the sacrifice. As a sacrifice, he's offering himself. Or as Abraham said in Genesis 22, God will provide himself as the sacrifice. He gave himself as an expiation. Don't be afraid of those theological words. You know what expiation means? It has the same idea as atonement or guilt offering. Isaiah 53.10, he's offered his soul as an offering for guilt. Therefore, his death was not just an ordinary death. It was painful, it was shameful, and it was an accursed thing. Painful beyond our understanding, it was shameful. You see, compelling a condemned person to carry their own cross, expelling them from the city to a place outside the gate, and there killing them by means of a death, as Cicero says, was considered to be the death of a slave. Let the very name of the cross be far removed from the body of any Roman citizen. And further from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. I'm quoting Cicero there. Therefore, being a Roman himself, Paul, even should he die, had no comprehension of what it was like to die as Jesus did. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 that Jesus vicariously bore the curse of God. Deuteronomy 21 says, anybody who is hanged is accursed. It's one thing in respect to a dead body, how much more with reference to a living person. And listen to this. While he was hanging on the cross, from below, Satan and all of his hosts assailed him. From round about, men heaped scorn on him. From above, God dropped upon him the pallor of darkness, the symbol of the curse. And from within, there arose this bitter cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Into this hell, the hell of Calvary, Jesus descended. Why? 
What is the message of the cross? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the word or the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ, not just Christ, but Christ crucified. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I knew nothing among you, not my eloquence, not my wisdom, not my smarts, but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation. There's another one of those theological words, and I'm sorry to say, there are some translations that have changed that word. They don't like it. It's too harsh. They've changed it to the word atonement. It's not atonement. Although atonement is a biblical word, it's propitiation. Propitiation means Jesus died to satisfy the wrath of God. So what is the message? It's a message that God hates sin. First and foremost, the cross is yelling to us, God hates sin. My sin, your sin, all sin. It is also telling us that the only remedy for our sin is the death, burial, resurrection, and life of Jesus Christ. But it also is telling us that God loves unlovely sinners. So what do we say to this? Can I remind you one more time? You're probably getting tired of it. Humility leads to leads to H-U-J. Been preaching on Hudge for a couple of weeks. Now, where do you see humility? Well, according to this passage, we see this humility, the greatest example of it is Jesus Christ. And from his example so far in verses 5 through 8, we've learned three things about servanthood. Number one, it means giving up my rights for others. Willingly giving up my rights. I, I could keep it. Jesus was God, but he didn't grasp it to the point of not humbling himself. Secondly, it means becoming less so others can become more. Oh, dear Lord. That is not cultural. To become less, we're always told and pushed. You need to become more. You need to get bigger and better and higher and more exalted than others. No. No. Not in the body of Christ. It doesn't mean you lay down and become a doormat. Please don't take it that far. In my heart, in my relationship with other brothers and sisters, and I would also say in relationship to unconverted people as well, I should be willing to become less so others can become more. Thirdly, it means becoming obedient, whatever it costs. Ah, there's the word, whatever. Moitier, I think that's how you pronounce his name, says this, Jesus Christ is the role model for every Christian. Now, if you would ask professional athletes, etc., etc., who is your role model? Many of them I've heard say Jesus Christ. I have never, and I'm not judging, 
But I've never heard anyone say, do you know why? He didn't win the Super Bowl. He didn't get a trophy. He didn't get a big raise. You know why Jesus Christ is my role model? Because He teaches me how to be a servant to my fellow players, my neighbors, my, my, my church, my brothers and sisters. It teaches me how to be the greatest servant in all the world. You don't hear that, do you? We don't think that way naturally. It's a work of the Spirit of God taking His Word and applying it to my life. And brothers, if you are in Him, and if you're a Christian, you are in Christ, you must be like Him, and really in your heart you want to be like Him. That's that battle of sanctification. Jesus is the one who turned His back voluntarily and deliberately on everything that hinted at the breaking forth of the eternal glories of God. So, I dare not insist on my rights. Why? Because He didn't. I cannot refuse to be a servant among my brothers and sisters. Why? Because he didn't. I cannot forego humiliation and loss because he did not. He recognized no limit to the extent to which his obedience to God and self-humbling must go. Whatever he found in himself to be expendable, he spent. While anything that was left which could be poured forth, he poured it out. Nothing was too small to give. Nothing was too great to give. This is the mind and the life of Jesus Christ which is commended to us as learning how to be servants and humble before God. So, the underlying thought of verses 5-8, through eight, I think this is Mr. Hendrickson, says this, Surely, if Christ Jesus humbled Himself so very deeply, so can I, if I know Christ constantly willing to humble myself in my own small way. Surely if Jesus became obedient to the extent of death, even death on a cross, then I should become increasingly obedient to the divine directions and should accordingly strive more and more to achieve in my life the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of oneness and lowliness and helpfulness and humility, which is pleasing to God, which will lead to unity, which will lead to joy. 1 Peter 2, 19-21. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, someone endures sorrows for suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do what is good and you suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an, and here's the word, an example so that you might follow in His steps. Wow. That's some heavy stuff. I believe that if a, a group of people, whether it's here or anywhere in the world, would take this seriously and say, by the grace of God, I am going to be that. I'm going to strive for that. And begin putting that into practice, that would be Transformative. Revival would break out among God's people. True revival would break out among God's people. Lost people would look at that and say, what in the name of heaven has happened to that group of Christians? God is in their midst. So how do we respond to this? Well, I borrow these three thoughts from a guy named Philip Johnson who's written an extensive commentary. So much stuff, I get a headache reading it. I'll be honest with you. Not because it's boring, but because there's so much. 
I can wrap it up in three thoughts. Number one, be filled with praise and worship. The songwriter said, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Ah, Jesus is so wonderful. Secondly, be amazed and astonished again today and every day that Jesus would take someone like me. You see, the lower I go in my own estimation, the more I understand my unworthiness and see what Jesus did on my behalf, the more I'm going to love Him, the more I'm going to serve Him, the more I'm going to try to put into practice this virtue called humility. And then I would say, be humbled and transformed. Be filled with praise. Be amazed and astonished and be humble and transformed. You'll see in your outline, perhaps, did I list three different things there? I don't have time to read them, but I've got to read one of them. I've got three illustrations that really captures what I'm saying here. One of them has to do with the Moravians. There were two Moravians, two men in the Moravian Heron Hut Company. The only way they could go to the West Indies and be a missionary was to sell themselves into slavery knowing they would never come back. And they did. They did. The other illustration is from a book that I've read. It's about the uh, Japanese prison camp. By the way, the, the bridge over the River Kwai, I hate to bust your bubble. Richard Holden and his buddies didn't blow it up. It was bombed. But if you, want, if you want to read it, it's a small paperback. But in that paperback, a revival broke out in the Japanese internment camp. Unbelievable what God did. How he brought his presence in there. And men who were dying by the droves were sacrificing and giving. One guy literally starved himself to death to assist and minister to another man in that prison camp. But this is the one I want to read to you. Have you ever heard of Borden's? The food group? You know anything about William Borden? Ah, hope after today you'll not be able to say no. William Borden, 1904, graduated from Chicago High School. He was an heir to the Borden family fortune, already wealthy. For his high school graduation present, his parents gave 16-year-old Borden a trip around the world. As the young man traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. Finally, Bill Borden wrote home to his family, I want to be a missionary. One friend said this, one friend said this, Bill, you're just throwing yourself away as a missionary. A story often associated with Borden says that in response to that letter, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible, no reserves. Even though young Borden was wealthy, he arrived on the campus of Yale University in 1905, trying to look like just one more freshman. Very quickly, however, his classmates noticed something unusual about him, and it wasn't that he had lots of money. One of them wrote, he, quote, came to college far ahead spiritually than any of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ, and really he had done it. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was solid as a rock just because of his settled purpose and consecration to the mission field. During his college years, Bill Borden made an entry in his personal journal that defined what his classmates were seeing in him. Here's what it said. Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Borden's first disappointment at Yale came when the university president spoke in a convocation about the students' need of, quote, having a fixed purpose. After that speech, Borden wrote, he forgot to say something in that speech. What should our purpose be? And where should we get the ability to persevere and the strength to resist that temptation? 
Surveying the Yale faculty and much of the student body, Borden lamented what he saw as the end result of such an empty, humanistic philosophy, which was moral weakness and sin-ruined lives. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started something that would transform the whole campus. One of his friends described how it started. It was well on the first term when Bill and I just started praying together in the morning before breakfast. Can't say it was my suggestion or his, but I'm pretty sure it was his. We'd been meeting only a short time when a third student joined us, and soon after a fourth. The time was spent in prayer after a brief reading of Scripture. Bill's handling of Scripture was very helpful. He would read to us from the Bible, show us something God had promised, and then proceed to claim the promise with assurance. Borden's small morning prayer group gave birth to a movement that soon spread across the campus. By the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting every week for Bible study and prayer. By the time Bill Borden was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in these groups. Borden made it his habit to seek out the most incorrigible students and try to bring them to salvation. In his sophomore year, we organized Bible study groups and divided up the class of 300 or more, each man interested in taking a certain number. All the names were gone over one by one, and the question was asked, who will take this person? When it came to someone they thought would be a hard one to deal with, there would be an ominous pause. Nobody wanted the responsibility. Then Bill's voice would be heard, put him down on my list. Borden's outreach ministry was not confined to the Yale campus. He cared about widows and orphans and the disabled. He rescued drunks from the streets of New Haven. To try to rehabilitate them, he founded the Yale Hope Mission. One of Bill Borden's friends wrote that he, quote, might often be found in the lower parts of the city at night on the street in a cheap lodging house or some restaurant to which he had taken a poor hungry fellow to feed him, seeking to lead him to Christ. Borden's missionary call narrowed and I'm reading this because this is the month of Ramadan, his missionary call narrowed to the Muslim Kansu people in China. Once he fixed his eyes on that goal, Borden never wavered. He challenged his classmates to consider being missionaries. One of them said about him, quote, he certainly was one of the strongest characters I have ever known, and he put backbone into the rest of us at college. There was real iron in him, and I always felt he was of the stuff martyrs were made out of and heroic missionaries of more modern times. Although he was a millionaire, he seemed to realize always that he must be about his father's business and not wasting time in the pursuit of amusement. Although Borden refused to join a fraternity, he did more with his classmates in his senior year than ever before. He presided over the huge student missionary conference held at Yale and served as president of the Honor Society, Phi Beta Kappa. Upon graduation from Yale, Borden turned down some high-paying job offers it has been reported that in his Bible he wrote two more words, no retreat. He went on to do graduate work at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey. When he finished his studies at Princeton, he sailed for China. Because he was hoping to work with Muslims, he stopped first in Egypt to learn Arabic. While there, he contracted spinal meningitis. Within a month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. With the news of William Whiting Borden's death was cabled back to the U.S., the story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. A wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, he gave away himself in a way so joyous and natural it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice, wrote Mary Taylor in her introduction to his biography. Perhaps you're asking yourself this question, 
Was Borden's untimely death a waste? Not from God's perspective. As the story has it, prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in the back of his Bible. I commend these words to us today as a motto for our Christian life and for this congregation. Underneath the words where he had written, no reserve and no retreat, he wrote, no regret. No regret. That is an example of following Jesus Christ in the kind of humility that Paul is talking about here. Don't be thinking of anyone else. Don't be metaphorically pointing your finger at anyone else. Right here, am I willing to do what Paul says the Philippian believers should do? If I will take that before the Lord, He will transform my life and He'll take a group of people and transform them and bring great honor and glory to His name. There will be an outpouring of unity and love and joy. It'll spill over into the community. It'll reach to the farthest corners of the globe from this place. Well, if you're here again this morning and you don't know Christ, I want you to know something. You got a problem. It's not lack of money or education or friends on Facebook or anything else. You know what your problem is? Your problem is sin. You were born with it. And if it doesn't change, you'll be separated from God forever. But God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to bear the sin of all who believe in Him. Trust Him. Receive His life and His death as their hope of salvation. Would you do that if you've not done that? And this morning I want to close with a song. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. This is a song of testimony and consecration by the body of Christ. We need to live our lives underneath or beneath the shadow of the cross of Christ. And I want you to stand together with me and let's sing it in closing. Beneath the cross of Jesus. Let's stand together and pray, please. Or sing and then I'll pray.